This morning I'll be reading from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So I beg you, brothers and sisters, because of the great mercy God has shown us, offer your lives as a living sacrifice to him, an offering that is only for God and pleasing to him. Considering what he has done, it is only right that you should worship him in this way. Don't change yourselves to be like the people of this world, but let God change you inside with a new way of thinking. Then you will be able to understand and accept what God wants for you. You will be able to know what is good and pleasing to him and what is perfect. Wow, great morning, church. Amen? Wow, oh, that was fun. Thank you, Raven. Can't wait to see what God's going to do with your entire family with us. Um, one of the things, I didn't intend to do this, but it's just kind of been in my heart. I'm going to to let you know, your staff and uh, several leaders from this church and this community attended the Global Leadership Summit in Fredericksburg. And I want you to know that as a staff, when we get to go spend two days getting our cups filled, and that's a, a part of the contributions of this church, that this staff does not take that lightly. Um, time for us to refresh and renew is a powerful, powerful thing. And this Global Leadership Summit uh, that's hosted by Bill Hybels and the folks at uh, Willow Creek Church in Chicago, uh, was broadcast this year to over, uh, I believe it's 500 sites. Over 600,000 people were a part of that event uh, globally, literally. And um, I'd like to ask you to plant that in your prayer list uh, because for the last couple of years, we've been praying about and talking about in the eldership about bringing that summit here to Kerrville and our church being a host for that. Uh, we're in uh, conversations with Shriner University about that possibly being a host site. Uh, they sent a representative this year to, to taste the conference and see uh, what it was like. And, uh, and so we're just in conversations about that right now. And I don't know where it's going to lead. It may end up as uh, God says no. That's just something that uh, as a staff he would like for us to be able to have 30 miles away and to attend. But uh, they had over 356 folks there in Fredericksburg. And uh, comparative of size here, uh, I think when you look at the leadership that uh, our community needs uh, all across the board, from hospitals to uh, the city services to school systems, uh, this Global Leadership Summit impacts all of those areas of leadership. And, uh, and so I'm asking you, please, be in prayer about that. But also, just wanted to say thank you uh, for entrusting us uh, with the time to be able to go do that. Reporters were uh, interviewing a 104-year-old woman. It was her birthday. And she was asked the question, what's the best thing about being 104? And she said, no peer pressure. <laughs> Another senior gentleman was asked, what's, what's difficult about life at your age? He was 97. He said, well, son, I've had two bypass surgeries, a hip replaced. I fought prostate cancer and diabetes. I'm half blind. Can't hear anything quieter than a jet engine. I take 40 different medications that make me dizzy, winded, and subject to blackouts. I can hardly feel my hands and feet anymore. Can't remember whether I'm 82 or 97, but thank God I still have my driver's license. <laughs> I think I was behind that guy on the way to church today. Now, I don't feel old, <laughs> I don't think I act old, but suddenly it seems everybody's sending me jokes about old people. Don't know what's up with that. But the truth be known, 
When I was in college, I thought 56 was old. <laughs> it's getting younger every single day. Some days it does feel old, though, to be honest. But most days it doesn't. And the truth is, I don't mind getting old because I love older Christians. My best friend in Ruidoso, I met at, when he was the age of 70. And we were best friends until he left this world at the age of the middle 80s, I believe. That's Carlene's husband, George. One thing I love about older Christians is that they can laugh at themselves. I will never forget Ann Parrish, one of my favorite older saints to be around. She was talking about a Bible class that she was in. She said the mean age was about 70. Maybe that was the low end of the youngest in the class. When one sister commented, every time I get in the car, I pray for God to keep me safe. And Ann said, not me. At my age, I pray that God keeps everybody else safe. <laughs> I love her. I love older Christians. They seem to be able to laugh at themselves a lot easier than I think younger Christians do. And one reason I believe is that life and experience has taught them what really matters and what not so much. It's why they're qualified like no other to teach what the Apostle John would call world class. John would tell you that you're going to have to pass world class if you want to do some good in the world. That's the message of this morning as we look at the next section of 1 John 2 and continue to work our way through what I believe is one of the more powerful letters in the entire Bible. I'm about to read two paragraphs that at first glance maybe don't seem like they go together, but hang on with me and I think you'll see that they do. 1 John 2 and verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because of your sins. They're forgiven on account of his name. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, young people, because you have conquered the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young people, because you're strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, or yours says the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the desire of life. It doesn't come from the Father, but it comes from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away. But those who do the will of the God live forever. I'm going to say the first part of that verse, and you read the last part with me, church. And the world and its desires are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. Father, we don't want to forget that. You know, this is a long, um, this is the end of a long week for the one you've asked to speak this morning, and he is weary. And it really feels like, not a sack lunch, but um, a piece of bread this morning. So please, would you empower me to do what only you can do, and that is to speak your truth into hearts that you needed to be here today to hear it. 
you always are the one who makes anything good happen during this time. And so, Holy Spirit, do your best work. But I ask for an extra measure of your anointing this morning. And I also pray for the Calvary Temple Church. I know that they want to live forever. And so we're asking, Spirit, would you help them do the will of the Father? Would you help them not love the world or the things in the world? We're asking the same thing of us this morning. In Jesus' name, and everyone said. There's only one command in this particular section of Scripture, and it's found in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, I think it's important, hugely important to know what, what in the world does John mean by the world. Because some of you will say, hey, wait a minute. I love the world. I live in it. I'm part of the world. Why in the world would God say, Jimmy, do not love the world or the things in the world? That didn't make sense. Sometimes in all language, not just English, even Greek, we can use some words in different contexts and those, or we can use the same words in different contexts and those same words have different meaning. I love the Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin's dreaming again. He loves to do that. He loves to put himself in all kinds of wild and exciting adventures, which always seem to yield some provoking thought. One of my favorites, Calvin himself, is in a World War II bomber. He's a tail gunner. The pilot sees some enemy planes approaching, and so he hollers back to Calvin, who's a gunner, enemy planes at 2 o'clock. Calvin replies, okay, what do we do till then? <laughs> when we misunderstand context, it can be devastating. <laughs> it can be life-threatening. And so I'm going to invite you to lean in this morning to some context, all right? When we hear that stunning statement, do not love the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Living in the world and not loving the world, I think, can be a little bit complicated because the word world is used several different ways in Scripture. Number one, it's used to talk about creation. And I want you to know it's okay to love creation. Sunsets and waterfalls, elk and hamsters. It's okay to love the colors of fall and the serenity of a placid lake. Why? Because God loves it. The Genesis account records after every different segment that he creates just by his word, he says, that's good. And we don't ever want to forget that. This place is really, really good. And he's asked us like Adam and Eve to take care of it because it is so good. As a matter of fact, it's so good, Revelation 21 and verse 1 says, he's going to bring about a new earth and a new heaven. We'll talk more about that in a minute. God says, do not love the world. That doesn't mean don't love creation. Number two, sometimes in Scripture, the word world is used to talk about humanity. You're familiar with this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the whoever in this context helps us know that the world in this context is people. God loves people. 
And so it's not talking about people when he says don't love the world. Sometimes the word world is used in Scripture in a third way. A Satan-inspired worldview is the definition of this use of the word world. A vision for life and a pursuit of life where God is optional to it. As a matter of fact, when the Bible speaks of the world, it's often talking about a force in the world that actually seems to set itself against God, either by ignoring him or by brazenly challenging him. It's a worldview that has permeated politics and permeated the economy and permeated the education system, permeated the home, and here recently, this weekend, the streets of this country. It is a system of thinking that has no room in it for God. And that's what John means here. And it's what he means in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 when he says this. We know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Jesus speaks similarly of the devil in John chapter 16 when he calls him the prince of this world. It's that system that's against God that Jesus refers to in John chapter 15 and verse 18 when he says this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first, please. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But, you, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. I don't like that. I don't like it when anybody hates me. But please hear me, they hated Jesus. The world did. Those who were a part of a system, a force that was at work in the world that either brazenly stood up to God or passively just ignored him. And he says that world is going to hate you if you're a follower of Christ like the disciples are a follower of Christ. Because there's a Satan-driven force that's against everything that is God. Church, please hear me this morning. The challenge that we face is how do we live in this God-created world without submitting and succumbing to this anti-God force that's in the world. What would it look like if we did? What would it look like if worldliness competed with godliness in our lives? Let's make this personal. Let's just talk about, not talk about it as if it was outside this building. It's here in this room. What would it look like if worldliness in our hearts was competing for godliness and the presence of the Spirit in our hearts? Having a worldly mindset, Tim Keller writes, is a state of mind where we live as if there is the material world and that's all there is. Where someone or something becomes my world. I think that's a great definition. Hear it again. Having a worldly mindset is a state of mind where we live as if the material world is all that there is. And where someone or something becomes my whole world. Wow, I get that. Because at times, my recreations in my life, the hunting, the golf, has become something that was my world. My job sometimes has become my world. And John's going to say, Jim, you can't live in that world and love God at the same time. I don't care 
what your position is at the church. That's why going to world class is not optional for any Christian in this room. Many Christians are going to fail world class, as a matter of fact. Jesus said as much. Not everybody who says unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of the Father who's in heaven. Oh, but some are going to say, but wait, didn't we do this and that and whoa and wow, all in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Man, I don't want to hear those words. But those who have worn the title of Christian and who've tried to love this world and love God are going to hear those words. That's what John's trying to say to the church there. And what he's trying to say to this church here in Kerrville, Texas. It's not an easy message to hear. John's going to give us two warnings that lead to worldliness coexisting in a spirit-led life or a spirit-filled life. The first one is this, misplaced devotions. He's going to give us two reasons not to love the world, and the first one is love of the world and love of the Father just flat out are incompatible. It's like water and oil. They just don't mix. It's like A&M and University of Texas. They just don't mix. Unless you're in this church where the Spirit reigns. Hallelujah. Jesus said the same thing. No man, hear his words, can serve two masters. He did not say you shouldn't serve two masters. He says nobody can serve two masters. I think the one who created life knows how that life ought to be lived. He's probably on target there. In verse 15, I love how the message says this. The love of the world squeezes out the love of the Father. It's displacement theology. John's going to say, let's break it down to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. All right, let's talk about that specifically. He's going to say, loving the world or being worldly or worldliness, whatever those three words you want to use, is loving something in the world as if it was all there is. Easy definition. What's loving the world? What's being worldly? What's worldliness? It's loving something in this world as if it's all there is. Ever done that? Some of you girls right now are loving a boy as if that's all there is. Some of you guys right now are loving your hobbies as if that's all it is. Some of you ladies right now are loving your looks as if that's all there is about you. It's when someone or something in the world becomes your whole life that we're in danger of losing our life, John's trying to say. And that's difficult because in and of themselves, God created things, God created people for me to see and experience and be honored by. And none of that stuff is bad. I want to try to help make that point this morning. When God surrounds us with people, it's because he loves us. To add people to our lives, it adds life to our life. When he surrounds our, 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 our lives with comfortable things. Because God, like I'm a dad, loves to help his kids be comfortable and enjoy some excitement and fill in the blank with all the things you as parents love to give your kids. God loves to give those things to us. Nothing wrong with enjoying a good meal. That's life-giving sometimes, literally. But it becomes a problem when you live to eat your next meal. Nothing wrong with having a job. Man, that helps you have some life, but it's wrong when that job becomes everything you live for. There's nothing wrong with looking good. 
But when you live to look good, that's a problem. It's the over-desire for those things that makes them bad. Hear that? It's the over-desire for those things that makes them bad. That's how the word lust is literally translated. Over-desire. And the fault in the lust is to desire something that's good far and away anything that God ever intended for it to be enjoyed or pursued. Is seeing a beautiful woman, ladies, wrong for us guys? Come on now. Is over-desiring a beautiful woman wrong for us guys? Yeah. Not seeing a beautiful woman. We can't help it if they walk in front of us or comes up on the screen. But we can help over-desiring one. Nothing wrong with sexuality. God created sexuality for us to enjoy in the covenant of marriage. Not just tolerate, but listen to me, enjoy the whole book of the Song of Solomon tries to make the point. But when we live for nothing but sex, it's wrong. It's worldly. There's nothing wrong with graciously accepting a little applause. But when you live for the applause, when you're over-desired for the applause and the recognition and being noticed, that's the pride of life, the Scripture says. It's unacceptable with God. won't stand for it. And you won't live for it. Not long. You see, God struggles with any of that. Not because his ego is so weak. He just needs to have our full affection. He just knows that when we don't give him our full affection, we open the door for self-destruction. Every single time. I have a close friend in Washington, D.C. who provided his oldest son, Michael, with an Xbox to enjoy. And it brought him life. (laughs) But not long after that, it stole his life. His oldest son forgot about dad, forgot about mom, forgot about the family, forgot about almost everything in his life except one thing, playing Xbox. His grades dropped, almost didn't graduate, suffered relationships that were just awful between the siblings and his parents. He put on a tremendous amount of weight because he wasn't getting exercise. So let me ask you a question, church. Are Xboxes worldly? No. No, they're not. Not any more than food or golf clubs or horses or cars or homes or the money in your pocket. But when we live for Xboxes, when we live for horses and when we live for cars and when we live for golf, when we live for that money that's in your pocket, then it becomes detestable to God. It just does. Because he knows that the longer you live with that as a false god, as a pseudo-god, with that pseudo-salvation it promises you, you will die. Maybe forever. You're certainly no earthly good to anybody when you're in that mode. None of us are. Those who truly know the living God won't allow themselves to be enamored with anything other than the God who provides everything for their lives. Christians say amen. We won't. It's not easy. I think what God is saying is that any craving that should be an affection directed toward God, any craving that should be an affection directed toward God is worldliness. Worldliness can be a good thing aimed in the wrong place. 
And that's usually what happens. So what's the answer? I'm just going to share one today. It's about all the time we have today. It is amazing to me how avoiding the world's temptation is connected to remembering my eternal destination. I know we don't think about that often enough, but I want you to know Scripture does. Scripture suggests it. Our worldly temptations can be countered much of the time when we remember our eternal destination. It's maintaining an eternal perspective on everything in our lives. This world is not my home. I'm just what? Passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere else beyond the blue. Here's what the word of the Lord says. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father of this world. When he has abolished all rule and authority and power, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 2 Peter 3, 10. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, we've got to get to Revelations 21 here. There we go. I love this. The same apostle who's writing our, our little letter here writes a big letter to wrap up the book, the story of God. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, chapter 21 and verse 1. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea there. How can I say this? This world is a dead man walking. That's what Scripture's trying to say. The switch just hadn't been thrown yet. The end of the story's already been written, and it's coming to a quick conclusion. How quick? I don't know. Those in the first century thought, it's any day. We're reminded to think about it as if it's any day. That that ought to inform, impact, and direct the way that I live every single day. Because someday we're going to stand before a holy God and everything that this world is proud of, all of its education achievements, all of its entertainment awards, all of its trophies on its wall, is going to be burned up, Scripture says. One of the ways that we counter the temptation of worldliness, I believe, is with a 500-year perspective. You could use anything that's outside probably the lifetime of yours, but I like that number, 500 years. And there's a question that we learned a couple of years back that's been useful to us in making all kinds of wise decisions. This might make it a little more wiser. In view of my past experiences and my present circumstances and my 500-year hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing for me to do? It's amazing how considering that I'm going to be alive somewhere in 500 years matters to what I'm about to decide upon today, doesn't it? That'll shift your perspective a little bit. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. He says, if you will think, you Christians, about this, this God that we're about to be with and this, this new life we're about to step into, that this has just been the prologue. This has just been the introduction to that might make a difference to whether you decide to let him go all the way with you in the back seat of some car. That might make the difference to how much time you're spending on the golf course. That, much make, that might make the difference in that 1% that you're giving instead of the 10, which is stealing, the Bible says, if you just want to stop 
at one. Where are you going to be with that money in 500 years? Where are you going to be with that boy in 500 years? Where are you going to be with that handicap in 500 years? In view of my past experiences, my present circumstances, and my 500-year future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing for me to do here? I think that's helpful. The question is, if we know that's true, and the folks sitting in this room all consider themselves who are Christians to be heirs of that eternal heaven, that eternal presence with God, which I'm assuming most of you are because that's John's hope. He's wanting you to know that you can know I will stand in his presence and I will raise my hands and and be a part of the greatest worship service ever. I can know that. That's his whole purpose. Not to threaten you. Not to warn you. Now he's loving you. He's trying to grow you up as best as he can. So the question is, is why? If we're heirs of the eternal, why are we so focused on the transient? Why too often do we reflect instead of reject what the world values? Part of it's misplaced devotions. The second one is an immature development. Now, I think we all agree a new birth is wonderful. If you believe that's true, say amen. New births are wonderful. But we also agree that permanent infancy is terrible. When we hear of a baby that will never develop and never grow and never mature, we all agree that on some level, that's a tragedy. Nod your head if you think so. All right. Because it is. John would say that the presence of worldliness in the church contributes to the absence of spiritual maturity. And that's what he's addressing when he's talking about in the very first part of our reading today when he's talking about the fathers and the young people and the children I want you to understand when he's talking about that in the early part, I just love him for this. He's praising them. Not so much at the age that they're at chronologically in their lives, but at the stage they're at in following Christ. I love how he handles this. Before he praises them, before he warns them, he praises them. And I think that's a great way to handle any way that you're trying to encourage folks to anything in this world. But he points out disaster can come. Devotion can be cut short when worldliness invades our lives. It stunts our growth. His comments on children and youth and fathers, again, are not so much age-appropriate as much as they are stage-appropriate. Now, they should go together. We know that. We think that the older that you get chronologically in the church, the more mature you should be. But you know what, I can can point you out to a couple of teens right now who are much more mature than maybe some 60 and 70-year-olds in our church. Just my opinion. Maybe a 56-year-old in our church. Those two ought to go hand-in-hand, but they just don't. So what, what he's talking about, though, are those who've just come into Christ, who are at the beginning. And what he's going to try to say in this section here is, if you're at the beginning, all right, If you're going to do anything to help prepare yourself to not get sucked in by the world and making it your entire world, then you start with grace. He writes to those children, he says, remember you're forgiven. 
I want to remind you this morning, remember that you've been graced. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody boasts. That really is important for, for newbies to get? Oh, yeah. Because right out of the gate, we want them to understand that when we take them into these waters here, and we applaud, it's not because of what they're doing. We're applauding because of what Christ is doing. He's cleansing them. He's empowering them. They didn't do anything. They just went. And hopefully they got up. Which they do. Buried in the likeness of his, his, oh, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life like he did. They just submitted. They just yielded. They just received the gift. And John's going to say that's a great place for all newbie Christians to start. Because down the road somewhere, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is going to be on you saying, you're not doing enough. You're not performing well enough. No, probably not. But listen to me clearly, devil, I'm loved enough. I'm graced enough. Next slide. He talks to growing Christians here in that little section. And I hope you're growing. And you know what he ties that growth to? The Word. Growing in grace, growing in the Word. Next slide. He says in 1 John 2.14, I write to you, young people, not children, but young people, a little bit more mature, because you're strong, and the Word of God abides in you. There's where your strength's going to come from to avoid the worldliness trap, to avoid making anything in this world your entire world. Next verse. You take that sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Two different things there. You've got the Spirit of God indwelling you, but if you want to let that thing loose and you want to be a part of Him conquering some stuff in this world, not just defending, not just trying to hang on until Jesus comes, I mean taking some things back, you put on that sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's what growing Christians do. Now the last group. One more slide. Maturing Christians. Couldn't wait to get to this. I've been waiting all morning to get to this section of the sermon. Because I love our maturing Christians here. And we have a boatload. You know, I don't say this in any kind of looking down way because that would be pride of life. I'm not trying to be better or above anybody. But you know, I can't imagine a church of just 30-somethings or less. Energetic, <laughs> enthusiastic, maybe. Energetic and enthusiastic, I think that's good. But there's some fruits of the Spirit like peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control that I see in a lot of our maturing Christians here. And I love you for it. And there's a very special group this morning that I couldn't wait to love on and to acknowledge. There are some Couples here who have not just read the word about love and caring and selflessness and turning the other cheek and uh, giving love when it's needed, not when it's deserved. We have some couples here who have been married for over 50 years this month in August, and you're not going to believe how many we have. Don't stand up, but I'd like for you to stand up in a minute because I know how old you are. I want to keep you up just for a short time. 
August 1st was Jimmy and Anissa's 60th anniversary. Don't, don't hold your applause for the end, okay? On August the 7th was Richard and Berta Cole's anniversary, 50 years. On August 9th, Dal and Gail Howard, 54 years. On August 10th, Buddy and Reba Pape, 60 years. On August 27th will be James and Donna Houston's 52nd year. On August 28th, Dwayne and Carol Bell will serve, will serve, <laughs> will celebrate 51 years. Jim and Joanne Gibbons will celebrate their 53rd year on August 29th. On August 31st, Beryl, Burl and Carolyn Wright will celebrate 55 years. And last but not least, on August 31st, Skip and, Conrad, Skip and Sandra Conrad will celebrate 54 years. Now will y'all stand up. We want to honor you. Come on. You're our heroes. You're our heroes. Nobody gets to those distances without some serious running. Amen. When you wanted to quit and sit down and say enough, but you didn't because we see in you that the Spirit is maturing you to not just hear the words of Scripture but love them. And so we celebrate with you. And we pledge to those of you who stood that we will do all within our power to not allow the world to put an end to one of our marriages. Amen, the rest of you? That we will look to these folks and have them wrap their arms around us so that we can finish like they do. And then hopefully in 50, 60 years, we'll be standing when some buzzhead preacher like me is saying, Hey, look at these folks. Wow. I'm honored to call you my family. And this morning, we want to invite you to be family. Now, you may have walked in here this morning, and I've been talking a lot about you because you know God has not had your affection. Something else in this world does. And you're hearing for the first time, maybe in a long time, wow, he doesn't think too much of this. No, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, he invited you to come and hear this message today because he wants your heart back. What do you say? Nothing that you're trying to love will be as faithful as this God. Christians say amen. Nothing will be as faithful to you. Nothing will deliver like he delivers. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalms 116 says, and often I find maturing Christians saying, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? Psalm 71 is another verse that I hear many maturing Christians say, now that I'm old and gray, do not abandon me, O God. Let me proclaim your power to this new generation, your mighty miracles to all who come after me. You keep proclaiming maturing Christians. We need you to. Because we need to hear your God stories about how you persevered. So along with those praises, we need to see some scars, okay? About where you almost sat down and quit. Almost gave up. Because sometimes we want to sit down and quit and give up. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for hearing my prayer today. There's no way I would have expected to get through this message that clearly. And I know, Holy Spirit, you did that. But now let your word sink into the hearts of everyone who's hearing this this morning. Help them to do some um, examination. Who 
is the apple of their heart, apple of their eye. And if it's not you, God, help them to see it now. Help them repent of that now. Help come and confess that now. Help them, if they need to restore that, because they're a brother or sister in Christ, help them restore that now. But Father, if they're, they're just now thinking about maybe today turning over their heart completely into your hands, will you give them the courage to make that walk and find me so we can see one more brother or sister added to this family in Jesus' name? And everyone said, if we can help you in any way, come while we stand and praise him.